as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, are you ready for it? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery of Christ and the mystery of the gospel, which in former ages had not been fully revealed. As we saw, there were hints of it along the way. Even when God originally called Abraham, I'll make you a blessing to all the nations, or in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are hints along the way, but nobody really comprehended what God's ultimate intention was uh, until it was revealed to the apostles and the prophets, and, and chief among them, uh, the apostle Paul. He was designated, he was called to be by God the apostle to the Gentiles. But it's interesting that Peter is the one who opens the way for this in Acts chapter 10. All right. So <clears throat> there's a, a really important thing that is going on here. Now, a moment ago, we mentioned in Ephesians 2, um, where Paul referred to the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And we can gauge a little something of the nature of this hostility, at least from the Jewish side, from a passage in what's called the Book of Jubilees. This is a Jewish work written sometime prior to 100 B.C. There were lots of other writings in this period by the Jews that were not sacred writings in the sense that they're not inspired scripture. One of these works is... uh, Uh, the book of Jubilees. And in the book of Jubilees, it represents Abraham admonishing his grandson Jacob and saying this, And you also, my son Jacob, remember my words and keep the commandments of Abraham your father. Separate Separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them. This becomes a big deal in the New Testament. Uh, Paul in Galatians talks about a time when he had to confront Peter to his face. He says, because before certain men came from James from the church in Jerusalem, Peter used to freely eat among the Gentile believers. But when these men came, he held himself aloof, and he was not walking in step with the gospel. And he said, and I confronted him to his face before them all and told him this. The table fellowship, which is uh, an expression of the closest kind of fellowship that you can have, and here in the book of Jubilees, it's, it's expressing the sentiment of, of the Jews at the time. Separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs. Do not become friends with them. Do not become partners with them in a business enterprise because their deeds are defiled and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. All right, so that's pretty much... Um, Uh, the the consensus view of the Jews concerning the Gentiles in the first century period, that they were unclean in every way and should be avoided as much as possible. Now, the Roman historian Tacitus um, mentions this as well. He says, The Jews are extremely loyal to one another and always ready to show compassion, but toward every other people they feel only hate and enmity. They sit apart at meals and they sleep apart, And although as a race they are prone to lust, they abstain from intercourse with foreign women, yet among themselves nothing is unlawful. 
They adopted circumcision, he says, and of course this is from an unbelieving pagan perspective of Judaism. They adopted circumcision to distinguish themselves from other peoples by this difference. He's noting the fact that the Jews make a priority to keep themselves distinct, separate, different from all of their neighbors, and he interprets that as hatred, which in many cases was actually the case, (laughs) Um, sadly enough. And this is why it was so difficult for Jewish Christians to come to the conclusion that God was actually concerned about the Gentiles. And we'll see something of the surprise of this, especially in chapter 11, when Peter is recounting what happened um, in chapter 10, that the Gentiles received the gospel. At first, the people are objecting. You went into the house of a Gentile, and you ate with them. How could you do this? And Peter recounts what happened, how the Lord had directed him to the house of Cornelius, and how the Lord poured out his spirit upon them. And we knew, we know that God poured out his spirit. We heard them speaking in other tongues and prophesying. We know it was a work of the spirit. And there's a great hush, and the people said, well, what what do you know? God has chosen to save Gentiles. (laughs) It comes as a complete shock and surprise to them. All right, so now with this background, let's read our text. How's that for an introduction? The rest will be shorter. It'll mostly be reading the text and a few comments along the way. So, have you found Acts chapter 10? Or have you refound it? At Caesarea, and I should just throw up a map here um, where Caesarea is. This traces the, the journey of Peter. Remember, he went to Lydda. And there he, by God's power, raised a man from his sick bed, a man who had been paralyzed, a man by the name of Aeneas. From there he was called to Joppa, where he raised Dorcas or Tabitha. Um, and then the story picks up where Peter is still in Joppa. It says, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, here was a man who busted all of the stereotypes. Here was a Gentile, a Roman soldier, no less, in an occupying force, and a man of rank in this occupying force. He's a centurion. He's in charge of 100 men. He's part of a larger group of soldiers, a cohort, which was about 600 men. And yet he is devout, means he has a an orientation towards God. He fears God. He gives alms to the people of Israel, and he prays to God continually. He is what the Jews refer to as a God-fearer, as we mentioned before, a Gentile who believed in the God of Israel but who had not yet become a proselyte and was not living like a Jew. And then in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared, stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? I think we would all have a similar response if while we're praying, as we learn later, this is what Cornelius was doing. He was praying. The angel comes, says, Cornelius. If an angel came while you were praying and called you by name, you would stare in terror, just like Cornelius did. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
remember that we traced out his, how Peter gets to Joppa, and now the story picks us up there. But why is it, do you imagine, that the Lord told Cornelius to send specifically for Peter? Were there no other Christians in Caesarea? Well, we know that there were. In fact, Philip was there. Do you remember Philip? We read about him in chapter 8. He was the one whom God called to uh, preach the gospel to the Samaritans and then was used by God to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ. And then um, he was whisked away, and it says that he was preaching in the cities and towns up the coast until he went to Caesarea, and he settled there, as we learn later in the book of Acts. So not only was Philip there, but presumably a number of other Christians as well. Well, why is it, or why is it that God tells, uh, through his angel, tells Cornelius to send for Peter? How terribly inefficient this would be when there are other Christians capable of this nearby. Well, two reasons, I think. The first is found in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through 18. We've, we've mentioned this before, so we're just going to be brief in our comments here. But in Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> Jesus asks his disciples, and it's interesting, he does this in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now listen to this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He's in essence saying that you will open the door of the kingdom of heaven by the preaching of the gospel. Um, he did this on the day of Pentecost with the Jews. He does this in Samaria with the Samaritans. Um, and now he's about to do it again for the Gentiles. Furthermore, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, two, la two chapters later, we'll see this same authority is extended to all of the apostles. And what do these terms mean, these terms binding and loosing? Well, we should know that these terms were not original with Jesus. They had been used for hundreds of years by the rabbis, who were the interpreters of the law. They said, under the law, this is permitted. This is what it meant to be loosed. If something was loosed, it was permitted. Or they would say, under the law, this is bound. In other words, it was forbidden. This is what it means to bind and loose things, to make a judgment uh, informed by God's law of what was permitted and what was forbidden. So this language is legal terminology. We've covered this before, but it's important for us, I think, to understand it clearly, to understand what's taking place in Acts chapter 10. The scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders, the teachers of the law, sometimes collectively, sometimes individually, would render a judgment, a pronouncement, a declaration on whether something was permitted or forbidden. Again, this is the power of binding and loosing, legal terminology. And the Mishnah, a body of Jewish law, is filled with this. 
Now Jesus takes this authority and he gives it to the leaders of the new Israel. He gives it to the apostles. He says to them, you now will be making the rulings about what is permitted and what is forbidden. And they would do this, of course, not at their own initiative and not according to their own wisdom and to their own judgment, but informed by the Holy Spirit and and judgments that would be consistent with the word of God. And now was the time for Peter to exercise this responsibility with reference to the Gentiles. As the chief of the apostles, he will play an instrumental role in this. And it was necessary for Peter to be the one to do this, for God to lead Peter to do this. And why is that? Because of Peter's position and importance, a position and importance given to him by Christ himself. The church would need Peter's testimony that this is, this is what God did for these Gentiles. No less an authority figure, no less a prominent a pers- per- person as Peter has experienced this. He was witness to this. God called him to do this. He bears testimony to it. God certainly could have used Philip or one of the other believers in Caesarea, even one of the other apostles. But the significance of the calling of the Gentiles, something that was such a huge departure from their experience and from their expectations, required the testimony of someone of no less a stature than Peter. All right, so uh, back in Acts chapter 10 and verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. The sixth hour would, of course, be noon. It's natural that he would get hungry. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Notice that Peter was a faithful Jew. He was very conscientious in keeping the kosher laws of the Old Testament. Um, He was not some reckless, careless Um, non-observant Jew. He was an observant Jew. He says, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, there are two uh, big implications of what the Lord says here to Peter. One one has, um, has to do with abolishing the kosher laws of the Old Testament as being no longer relevant for God's people. God is, is cleansing um, other forms of food, that which would be considered um, unclean according to Jewish law. So go ahead and, and enjoy your ham sandwich and your bacon and your lobster. But the other and more important thing at this point in, in this particular narrative is that God is showing by this that he is going to cleanse the Gentiles. The, Gent- the unclean animals were representative of unclean people to be avoided, to be held at arm's length, not to be used. And, and God is, is preparing Peter for the understanding that he is going to cleanse. 
He's going to cleanse the Gentiles. The voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. The same thing is repeated three times for the sake of emphasis. And the thing was taken back up into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might be that he had seen, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. What a coincidence. At the same time he has this vision, these men show up. Of course, we know it's no coincidence, right? God is orchestrating everything here, including the timing, the precise timing of it. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go uh, go down and accompany them without hesitation. He might have had hesitation had the spirit not told him this, right? Here comes a representative of the centurion, and he wants to see me? Why does he want to see me? And what's he got in store for me? He might be somewhat afraid and hesitant, but the spirit assures him not to be so. Go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the man and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Hmm. Troublesome, according to Jewish law. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends, as we should be earnestly desirous that our relatives and close friends should come to know the Lord and present every opportunity for them to do so. Cornelius is doing this. This is one more evidence of his devotion, his devout nature. He's calling in his family, calling in his friends. Come listen to the man that God told me to seek out. He's got important things for us to learn. When Peter entered, he entered the house of this Gentile. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Kind of a Gentile thing to do confusing sometimes the creator and the creature, the divine and the human. He he's still has some pagan ways of thinking about him, even though he's a God-fearer. And Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And he talked with him. Or as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown to me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see, he's understanding what that vision meant now, that it refers far far more than just to just animals. It refers to people. God is going to do something extraordinary with these people that we've always regarded as being unclean and common. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the, tenth, at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Let me just say as an aside here, I think that's just a lovely thing 
that God remembers the good things that you do in his name. Your alms have been remembered. When you do something kind for the poor, God remembers that. He doesn't forget it. When you stop along the road and help somebody who's broken down, offer a helping hand to change a tire, to call somebody to bring help, God remembers these acts of charity and kindness. Your alms have been remembered before God, the angel says. Now send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent to you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Right? These were things that were well known in that day. It hadn't been very, a very long time since uh, Jesus walked to the earth and performed these miracles and people started flocking to him. It was something that was well known here several years later, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Including, He's including here, of course, the whole number of the apostles, and there were a number of other people as well, the brothers of the Lord, uh, some of the faithful, devoted women were there. He didn't appear. He didn't suddenly appear in the courts of the temple to everyone, but he appeared to his, the witnesses whom he had chosen beforehand. And he commanded us, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter is, is just beginning his message here. He's warming up. He's, he's giving a historical overview of the ministry of Jesus. He speaks about his death, his resurrection. He says it's through believing in him that one receives the forgiveness of sins. And verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, I mean, how rude of God. He didn't even give Peter a chance to issue an altar call. (laughs) Everybody who wants to receive him, come forward. Everybody who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, I mean, while he's speaking, while he's preaching, and he's just getting started, I mean, his introduction is far shorter than mine. Ooh, maybe I should take a lesson. Nah. While he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were amazed by this. Now, how did they know that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them? Because they got goosebumps? Because their hair stood on end? 
because they got all excited. No, there's, a, there's an objective measure, something that was visible, tangible, something that they could easily discern. He says, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. All right, Peter and those who came with him, three other men, I believe, were like, whoa, the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost is happening to these Gentiles. And they haven't even been baptized. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't signed a pledge card or walked the aisle. I mean, here, God is doing something on his own initiative. And had we not been witnesses to this, we never would have believed it. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And I think that this unusual order of things, that they receive the Holy Spirit even before they make a profession of faith in Christ and before they receive baptism, I think this, this peculiar order of things was in order to convince Peter that God really had accepted these Gentiles. I'm not, I'm not quite sure that Peter even would have said, um, now, if you believe in Jesus, you can be baptized, but um, I think he probably would have said, now, you need to be circumcised, and you need to keep kosher, you need to do these other things, you know, and once you make a commitment to do that, we'll baptize you, you'll be counted as a Christian. I mean, this was so revolutionary, so far different from what they had expected and what they had experienced, that it required God to do something extraordinary. As he's speaking... Speaking of Christ, speaking of his atonement, God brings faith welling up in the hearts of those who hear. And, and God who can see the heart, he doesn't have to see somebody walk down the aisle. He doesn't have to see someone sign a pledge card. He knows what's going on in the heart. When faith arises in the heart, germinated by the Holy Spirit, taking the seed of the word and the Holy Spirit, bringing it alive to the person's soul, faith at that moment results in justification. They're accepted in God's sight, and God makes it obvious to them by pouring out his spirit upon them. And so Peter is like, look, they have everything that we have. Let's just go ahead and baptize them. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain some days. And I'm sure that those were glorious days for the household of Cornelius to have Peter there uh, instructing them more fully in the faith and telling them more from his own personal experience about Jesus and all that he did. Amen. Let's pray.